Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Today I'm speaking with Camilla Tassi. Projection designer Camilla Tassi is a musician and designer from Florence, Italy. Coming from formal backgrounds in computer science and music, she has worked as a designer, singer, producer, and translator. She has directed and produced performances of early and contemporary classical works, including a joint theater and opera project of Tennessee Williams and Larry Dellinger's Talk to Me Like the Rain. She has created projections for works including Monteverdi's L'Orfeo for Apollo's Fire, Stravinsky's La Rossignol for Yale Opera, Mozart's Magic Flute for the Berlin Opera Academy, and as an Italian coach and soprano, she has created program translations for Carnegie Hall and sings with Yale's Scola Cantorum. Tassi holds degrees in computer science and music from the University of Notre Dame, digital musics from Dartmouth, and is currently an MFA projection design candidate at Yale. Camilla, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, I know you're originally from Italy, and of course now you're studying at Yale. So how did that jump happen, and how did you, you know, initially come from Italy to the United States? What were your intentions, and then, you know, how it's ended up? Totally. It's been such a journey, and not too much of it completely planned. My family, we were, we were all from Italy, and we were in Florence before my parents decided that you know, for a variety of economical reasons in Italy to see if potentially both myself and my brother would study in the States. And some of my dad's work brought him to the States. But it wasn't until 2005 that we decided to move, and we moved to Florida. And, you know, the two things that remained the same, regardless of language, I didn't speak English prior to coming here, were definitely for me math and music. I always loved math growing up, and I'd been playing piano since I was eight. It's kind of no surprise that they were the two fields that sort of inspired me the most. And, you know, I was so convinced I was going to end up being an engineer. But even as early as high school, I started getting really involved with my choral department. And it got to a point where I decided okay, I can, I can double major in college. I can do that. So I went into freshman year doing this dual degree, thinking by the end of you know these four years, I will know which one I like more and I can pursue that. And the only thing actually that happened is I ended up adding a minor in Italian studies. So <laughs> there's not really, you know, a clear winner didn't emerge. Well, you know, prior to that, I had started you know, singing in the opera program and as well as directing and producing works. And, you know, once you reach that level of engagement with your community and with the works, you start wondering, you know, how can I contribute the most and help others the most? How can I be a connector for other artists? And so I think that's what ultimately you know, inspired me the most. I knew I didn't want to go on into voice performance, but I I loved 
sort of like directing and producing works and there's no such thing as a master's for that um so i did a tech internship in chicago and i was set to go work for a company you know doing computer science until i discovered this wonderfully weird little program up up at dartmouth it takes six students three students a year it's a two-year program and oddly enough i found out of that program's existence through a voice lesson with nathan gunn the world is so is so weird and so small but it's a program that primarily focuses on experimental electronic music composition and i was actually the only non-composer in in my cohort so with digital musics we're talking like stockhausen and like cage yeah no totally it was exactly stockhausen cage um you know laurie anderson and you know i had had such a limited amount of exposure to these composers uh zanakis you know even in thinking more on like the acoustical side but uh it just created such an appreciation for sound and the beauty of even you know, we consider everyday sounds and how that can be music too. We even had a course that had us create music concrete compositions and sort of do field recordings. And I had never engaged with music in that way before. And we even explored installation art and whatnot. And it was, because it was such a flexible and free program, they very much encouraged us, we had to write a thesis, but they very much encouraged us to take courses outside of our department because it was such a small department to begin with. And I, that's where I took my first theater course and I took a set design class. And that sort of opened me up to the world of questioning space and questioning presentation of space which not a lot of classical music does, especially choral music. And, you know, we're so used to the formal recital hall, and we never question how sometimes how problematic that space is and how it already imposes sort of a relationship with the audience and a separation. And so set design was bringing me into this world where we were designing, you know, these spaces for the actors and the audience to be in and questioning all of that and then after that taking lighting design and especially with lighting design I was blown away at how similar some of the terms that my professor was using for lighting and how close they were to the terminology used to describe sound aha now we've started to reach the vocabulary of this podcast right now okay so tell me about this a little bit so then then we'll I have some other questions for sure yeah, no worries. Yeah, he, you know, he was talking a lot about um, the reveal and, you know, what do we accompany it with and how, you know, the the way he was describing color reminded me so much of how, you know, in sound we describe like texture and like all these properties, attack, release, uh, which, you know, is very much with lighting so much of it is about timing and the timing of the reveal or what you choose to reveal and show. And, you know, those two just go for me so much hand in hand. And I couldn't believe that I 
that I had ignored. I, f- I feel this this visual presentation element. And to me, lighting and music, well, lighting and video design are such musical mediums because they have, you know, the benefit of tempo, of timing, of, you know, crescendo of the crescendo you can do that with lighting and you you can do that with the appearance and disappearance of video in a way that you know traditional costume and set design is a bit more stationary in its look and so that's when I started more and more incorporating you know lighting can be a little tough if you don't have the fixtures and whatnot but I started incorporating projection design in some of the work I I was putting on with some of the students Mm, yeah so this no go ahead yeah, I'm very, I'm very interested in this. So <clears throat> I have an understanding, I think, of what production design is, although obviously people who really do it for a living will have, you know, much greater detail. But I sort of know it more from a film and TV perspective of basically, you know, all the things that are in the frame that are not the actors are basically fall under either props or the set. And so someone has to be responsible for creating everything that's here, that's within the frame. And so that person, that is often the production designer. And that person, you know, will talk with the director about, okay, what is the director's vision? How do I implement that vision given these are the materials we have? This is the budget we have. How can we make this happen? So I kind of have an an understanding of of production design, but projection design is where I would like to talk about this. So let me, so tell, give me like a quick idea of what that means to you and, and what sort of the, I don't know about the history of it, but like how it sort of started and what the deal is. <laughs> well, you know, projection design in very easy terms, it's it's also sometimes referred to as video design, though I, I see them as a bit, you know, separate from each other. Projection design in very basic terms is the use of, projectors who are shining light and image content image and video content onto surfaces and the surfaces can be the set or it can be even like the body of the performers and it can involve some techniques such as projection mapping you know projection in a sense is digital light so it's just the crafting of that the crafting of the content that gets projected although that is a content design animating it's even you know, a lot of the math and a lot of the lensing works, the engineering work that goes behind, you know, ensuring the optimal focus and optimal quality of, you know, what kind of projectors you need for it, what kind of space you're working with. And yeah, and, it, it, and it's also the programming aspect of, you know, once you have your media elements, programming them through the use of a media server for queuing and for timing. Mm-hmm. So what kind so of... Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt oh, no, you. No, go ahead. I know this Zoom is... It's tricky to, to match the timing here. Um, no, no worries. No, I was going to say, you know, so you're using obviously some kind of digital... Uh, I don't know. In music, we have like a digital wor- workstation or like, you mm-hmm. know, you have like Final yeah, Cut exactly. or, you know, Adobe totally. Premiere or Media Composer or whatever mm-hmm. to put these pieces together. So you're using something like that, I'm assuming, to oh, totally. cue and trigger everything. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, a lot of the content design we do through things like After Effects or Final Cut or, you know, Photoshop for stills. But then, yeah, we use what are called media servers, which some common ones are, for example, Isadora, Touch Designer, Watch Out, Disguise for some of the big, if you think, you know, some of the pop concerts or even like the Super Bowl, they use 
this media survey called this guys and those yeah just help you you can import all your media elements into that and it's there that you can do queuing and one of the things i love about some of these uh servers is that they allow for live queuing and live adjustments so that you can sort of map them to controls and be able to adjust them and tweak them live which sometimes feels like playing a musical instrument because you can respond to what you hear in a way that it's different from you know you have a clip and you have a you know clip track for the audio and you know that it's going to match up exactly this gives a lot more flexibility and freedom and honestly expression to the performers in a lot of cases to the musicians i've always felt that the crew of any production is often performing the same way that the actors are performing on a stage or on a set. I mean, because I, I bring up this example all the time. Like, it doesn't matter how great your performance is for a certain shot if they didn't catch you in the frame the way they wanted to and they didn't track you, they weren't able to track back at the correct speed or, you know, you're really, you're doing almost like a dance between the person who has to light it and move, you know, a... Um, like a boom mic, so the boom operator has to deal with the motion also, and they have to have techniques in order to match with what you're going to do as an actor and where you're going to walk and step. And so three or four people often have to move in coordination to get the desired effect. And then, of course, in like kind of a sad story, I feel like the actor always gets the credit for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's true. And it's so beautiful and so interesting to hear about it from you know, the film and acting perspective, because uh, I see it a lot more from the live stage perspective. And it's, it's very much the same. And it's all these elements together and all these minds sort of being on the same page and being attuned to each other that creates the overall you know, sensorial experience that is the performance. So I'm wondering how the, your computer science background feeds into this, because I can see a lot of places where it intersects. I know that in computer science, you're often doing like a lot of legitimate coding in a coding language. Are you spending time doing that at this level, or is everything pretty much more, you know, just working with interfaces? Totally. Yeah, no, thankfully, uh, a lot of it is more interfaces when it comes to these, even though there are some platforms that if you know a bit of, for example, Touch Designer, if you know a bit of Python, there's so much more you can do with it. Um, but, you know, one of the things that drew me to computer science outside of video games, that was a big video game child, but is this idea that you can create these worlds, these animations, these processes through, you know, just using your computer. You don't need extra materials. You don't need... You can create entire working and animating pieces from it. And it's... I, I see it as a very creative field, especially when dealing with graphics. And yeah, this idea that you can create a whole working thing from, you know, just lines of text, in a sense, is what, you know, drove me to it. And I think if it weren't for this computer science background, I, I, I don't think I would have found this this way into projection because it was this facility and this familiarity with you know quote unquote the digital art form of it that brought me into design to now be in a theater program you know design concentration within a theater program 
has been has been humbling, but it's also sort of shown that this is a this is an emerging field. These programs are young. Yale has one of the oldest ones, and the first graduating class of it was in 2013. This is still a relatively young field, and we're learning a lot about what does it mean to make and what does it take to make all of this work. Like he said, it's not about just the one designer. You also often have, you know, if you think of even, oh my gosh, Broadway, you could have something like 50 content creators, but you have, you have engineers, you have designers, you have assistant designers, the whole thing. <laughs> I'm interested in maybe picking a specific uh, production and just like walk me through what you did or how you helped in that particular situation. So I'm just thinking about like, um, well, we talked about this Monteverdi, Lorfeo. So tell me, you know, what the process was of working on that particular production. Totally. Yeah. And what's kind of fun about that, it's, it's a bit more unusual, you know, for classical music projection is a, it's, you know, it's been done now, but it's a bit of a newer process than it is for theater. You know, if you think about it, actually for theater, some of the earliest projection design was done, you know, first half of the 20th century by Piscator in Germany, you know, with the whole like Brecht and Epic, Epic theater. So it's, it's not very new in that sense, though the technology has progressed, you know, immensely. But, for example, for Apollo's Fire, I met them. I used to love their recordings. I met them because they came and gave a performance when I was a master's student. And I was just stage managing the performance and ended up singing for their director. And we just got into a conversation and she saw that you know, we were, we were both clearly passionate about early music, but also about interfacing with audiences today. And, you know, so she, you know, took a leap of faith. I, and I'm so thankful for that. And she asked, well, you know, we're touring this piece in, you know, a year from now to different venues, um, three different states. Would you be interested in designing projections for it? Right. So for, for something like that, you're projecting images and also other like videos and things like that or animations or you know a combination of these things perhaps totally it's a combination of photographs of images whatnot and you know for images that are not your own you you know you can composite different things but you have to get permission and oftentimes like buy a license but the beauty of of some of that is that for this particular piece i got to travel back home to italy and go to Mantua and the palace where this piece was first performed in, you know, the start of the 18th century and take photographs of some of the frescoes and some of the buildings and incorporate some of that in the overture of the work. And, you know, I sort of took that and then animated it and took it apart. And so the combination of that and then animating these other sometimes artworks or sometimes, you know, settings for these... It was very much a conversation with the music and with the director. And in the end, you know, this was a semi-staged opera that we were taking to different venues. And, you know, how can we give a sense of place and support the music and to sort of design the visual content and then adapt to each venue? Sometimes we only had four hours before a concert started. <laughs> so, you know, rushing to you know, focus constant, position it, and really sort of optimize. And in a couple of venues, I even had to cue lighting and all. 
it it was sort of it was beautiful because it's something that is still relatively new to classical music and to the presentation of classical music that's not already staged let's think of you know opera like traditional operas has dealt with it more but recital and concert classical music it's a new thing for them so i'm glad to be in a sort of way a bridge to welcome this medium of communication and this medium of like collaboration I was just looking at Apollo's Fire because I only have heard them in name and I'm a little more familiar with them just from reading a little bit about them, um, about the early music ensembles because it's kind of an interesting niche that few people know about. Music that's from that period was played on different instruments than a lot of the instruments we have now. So Apollo's Fire is essentially going and finding these old instruments, you know, and playing those pieces with those period instruments to try and find a way of producing a sound that's similar to the one that would have been produced, let's say, in the 1700s or the 1800s. What I find very interesting, though, is that it's also very forward-looking with these projections, which are, you know, not period at all, because they can't be. (laughs) And so I'm wondering how you look at, I guess, like, the only word I can think of is, like, the time paradigm, like this sort of weird connection between what's the present or the future even and the past and how that you know creates this effect on the audience I can only imagine as an audience member you're you're hearing something that someone who's your great 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 grandfather or grandmother had heard but you're seeing something that they could have never experienced and so how do you think about that is that something that's discussed very often Right. Well, you know, for me, in a sense, projection can actually act as both. It can help us connect to the past and it can also, you know, help us adapt some of these pieces to the audience we have today. I think of how, let's say, Carissimi's Oratorio, you know, one of the earliest in Rome, early 18th century, I believe, they, it was performed in a space that if you ever go inside it, you're surrounded by frescoes on three sides, these giant frescoes from like floor to ceiling. And sure, these works, quote unquote, weren't staged. And that's like a big thing that a lot of um, historians talk about. Oratorio is not staged and whatnot. But if you take the music alone and you try to take it to a different venue in a different time period where an audience doesn't speak the language, you know, you're never going to recreate that. And actually, in a sense, we're taking it further away from the original performance when you don't include a visual element in it. Mm-hmm. I really I really like that. That is very important to me because I find that, I mean, just with my discussions with classical music or even jazz music, I mean, maybe I'll try and connect this to something that's a little closer to home for me. When we talk about jazz music and playing something the way it was played in the 1930s, like it is important to remember that we don't live in the 1930s. We don't have all the other context that we would have viewed the music from if we had lived in that time. And so it's important, I think, personally, to create the bridge for us to understand what the music means today. So you're never going to get that experience from the 1930s because you're not going to know what it was like to live in the Great Depression and also hear the music. So you have to find some way of connecting these two ideas. And so if you're living in 2020, I mean, I guess now we might have a depression, so maybe there's something a little more apt about that. But I I think that 
it is important to have, whether it's through your program, it's through, oftentimes I feel like for classical and jazz music, like art music, it's just someone is just saying something. So they have some prepared speech or some prepared introduction. But you know, that helps. It helps. And in, I, in, in a lot of ways, I think that's better than just a program note. Yes. I guess the only way for me to explain it is that ultimately what you're trying to do, I think, in any artistic work that is kind of not just like cultural from the beginning. So I think maybe this doesn't apply to, you know, if you played music in a tribe or you played music as part of your like community, then I don't know if you're trying to evoke this like audience versus performer dichotomy. But excluding that, I feel like in general, like if you're looking at an artwork on the wall, you are trying to elicit some kind of reaction or emotion from whoever's looking at it. Um, you're trying to get some kind of reaction, whatever that may be. If you're in a theater work, you're trying to do the same thing. You have an audience that you're performing in front of. And whatever that reaction is going to be, that's the goal to me. The goal yeah. is not about, you mm -hmm. know, it's not even about what the composer or the writer intended necessarily. Because if, if it's Shakespeare, he intended something but no one understands that Shakespearean English unless you're a theater person. So the only way to even get close to his intention is to find a way to bridge the gap, right, from that time period. No, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things that drew me to theater when I was exposed to it, is that theater is a little bit better at classical music than this. Sorry, classical music. One of the first things when, you know, a, a, a piece of theater play is chosen is some of the first questions I hear asked are, you know, what is it about this piece that resonates with today? How are we going to, you know, what context are we putting it? How do, those are some of the first questions people ask. Where a lot of the times with classical music, there's too much a reliance on the legacy of the, you know, notes on paper alone. But we need to instead question a bit more. We need to question the text just because it's in a foreign language doesn't mean, you know, we get a pass. Um, and and a, a big thing is what you said, the relationship with the audience. Like, who is this really meant for? Is this for people who have already studied this piece and are educated in this kind of music? Or are we really trying to build, you know, a personal connection to this piece, like in this moment with this particular audience in mind? I think this problem is not necessarily being addressed in universities. If you look at where design programs are situated, they're always in theater programs and we either need to build a better mode of communication across departments and have let's say like theater students collaborate more with music students or whatnot or you know open up concentration or spaces make spaces for design and production within a music department yeah i i really resonate with this i I'll tell a very quick story, which has to do with my senior recital. So I wrote a play. I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I did. I wrote this play, and I wrote a bunch of musical compositions to go along with it. And I was going to do this for my USC capstone senior recital uh, in the jazz department because I went to study jazz. And my teacher was supportive. My, te my composition teacher and my drum set teacher were both incredibly supportive. My acting teacher was incredibly supportive, but the university in terms of offering me logistical support was completely useless. I have no other way to say it other than they were useless because I had asked 
six months ahead of time, I think, I had sent them like a copy of the script and I was like, hey, I really am not asking for a lot. I know this venue is not a theater venue because I also couldn't get a theater at USC to do it in. I had to do it at the music venue. And I said, all I would like really is I want lighting to be able to change literally only two cues, one for the oh acting gosh. related things, one for the music related things. So when I play music, I want it to have a different lighting cue than when I'm acting. And the other thing I want is one extra hour in the room to be able to set up, put props and put just a table and essentially two chairs. That's all I had. And I also um, needed to check um, headset mics. And it was the oh, fight of my life <laughs> to get this to happen. Oh my gosh, I completely, I bet, I bet, even for something as simple as that, the bureaucratic, you know, divides, especially between departments, and the moment you do something that's a bit out of the ordinary box, I mean, granted, this varies depending on, you know, what campus you're on, but, you know, it's it's something you find almost everywhere, but, you know, it's something that I see more and more that students are doing. Students... And I, I work a lot with the undergrads, for example, you know, I love sometimes volunteering design work for them or just like whenever they have a really cool idea, helping, you know, to connect them with someone else is more and more these students are wanting interdisciplinary work. They don't just want to do the traditional, you know, I play, you know, these couple sets from these periods in this very like traditional proscenium format. They are wanting, as as you know, as you did, to engage with with lighting, with and even you know, in your case, like different mediums within the same person. <laughs> That's amazing. For me, it was okay if I have a play and it's written in contemporary language, just like two college students talking, and that those are my characters, and the music is essentially like acting as a bridge between a couple different scenes and monologues so people kind of understand the emotional side of why I wrote what I wrote. But at the same time, the text of what I actually like are having these characters say is acting as the little clues that they now will find in the music. And I think that's was the way for me to take something that, I mean, let's be honest, modern jazz, I, I guess I'll put this in terms of like my dad. My dad you know, listen to 80s progressive rock music and like loves that stuff. And even though jazz, especially like modern jazz is only really like one degree removed from that, in my opinion, he doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. So he spent four years basically sending me to school and he doesn't understand what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, I know that life. <laughs> right. And so I thought, okay, if my dad's going to be in the audience, I do not want to do a recital for 45 minutes and have him not know what it is I do. Yeah, absolutely. So the only way for me to do that is to write a play. Like it's it's to put something in his context where he's like, oh, it's like I'm watching a movie. I'm watching like this theater performance and these people are saying stuff and then the music is there and it's a part of it and they both are connecting to create one sensory experience for the audience as opposed to two different ones. And that's what allows him to come back to me and say, Listen, I don't know exactly what you did, but what I can say is I was moved by it. So if I hear that, then you're like, okay, great. That's that was the whole point of this. I, you know, I go back to that 17th century oratory I was telling you about. We ended up putting that on at Dartmouth and staging it and including design in it and having audience on stage 
for it. And, you know, uh, same thing. A woman came up to me and she said, you know, I'm a fan of classical music, but my husband, he doesn't really listen to it. He's more into 60s rock and whatnot. But with all these elements together, it colored the emotion of the music and it made us made us feel it, made us feel connected to it. And that's what we want. That's what we want to do as um, as collaborators and performers. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the mechanics of like your day-to-day job and maybe we can talk here a little bit about how uh like what your inspirations are in terms of like other directors and maybe in terms of just the craft of doing what you do how would you describe that totally um well let's say yeah let's pretend i'm in production mode usually i end up getting you know a score i i love working from a musical score most of the time i'm out of state and i'm not there for all the rehearsals of of a piece so it's listening to it becoming familiar with it and starting to have ideas of where in the music and like what's happening and the storytelling of it because that's another thing all of these art forms and all these styles whether it's visual whether it's jazz whether it's classical it's all in the end storytelling and it's about you know visualizing and, and creating ways of how am I going to support the performers more and more something that i've been inspired by is how to use the least amount of visual material but still convey the emotion and the meaning and that's where a lot of you know quote-unquote abstraction of elements let's say you're having a window with light through. How can you do that sometimes with just shape or just color? And and that's where, you know, uh, directors and designers such as, for example, Robert Wilson, he's sort of the king of minimalism and design in sort of opera performance and theater performance, especially in his case with lighting design. But it's sort of, you know, taking some of that and then really diving into storyboarding uh, we sort of sketch out how the progression is going to be before you really dive into the content creation, which that part can be extremely tedious, but also very rewarding where you spend, you know, hours moving and keyframing and animating visual content. It's sort of even exercising restraint, restraint on the amount of material you use, but that can have the maximum sort of effect and impact on an audience member and the best sort of combination with the live performers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not really f- super familiar with Robert Wilson's work, but it's kind of interesting to talk about how interdisciplinary production design and direct directing is in kind of this even more experimental realm because it seems like a very niche idea, but I'm just looking like through his biography and you can see him collaborating with Philip Glass Allen Ginsberg, who kind of, okay, that's more, we're talking experimental. But then you start getting to Rufus Wainwright, who is one of my favorite, like, songwriters and, like, a pop, you know, like, an, almost a traditional pop context. And then you get to, like, Willem Dafoe and Lady Gaga, and you're like, okay, yeah. you know, there's something special about this person. So oh, absolutely. tell me a little bit about how you like consider an influence like that does it have to do with the aesthetic they create does it have to do with their work ethic does what does it have to you know how do you look at that influence totally for me a big part 
um, especially his work, is the aesthetic he creates. I had the joy of seeing one of his design productions live. It's incredibly striking and very different from everything else you can see because it's almost the as bare bones as you can get with the acting. You can describe like the acting almost as slow motion and there's often no props and there are these incredible and expressive lighting and sykes and saturated colors but in a way that everything shifts slowly over time both like the movement and the lighting and sometimes it sort of puts you in this world where you can really live inside the music or you know it's more for me personally it's more successful with some works than others but you know he found a language and a process that's very very unique and very his but it's one that's allowed a lot of people to get into these works and to maybe view them a little bit differently and not be distracted by one could argue extraneous elements in the visual picture of the work he has a very distinct style a bit controversial too um, especially from an acting staging acting perspective yeah, I was thinking about that in terms of how a director who has such a particular aesthetic visually would direct actors. Because, I mean, I, I can go back to film in terms of this. Like, some directors are definitely actors' directors, and some directors are definitely visual directors, and they leave the acting up to the actors and up to maybe other people involved in the production. And so I'm wondering how you consider that as a professional, do you try to get into the acting elements of it? Because you're at, technically, you're under the Yale Theater School, which is which is so legendary. It's almost just ridiculous. I mean, it makes me jealous at this point. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, though. <laughs> you know, for me, I only have, you know, I've done a limited amount of stage directing. But I I can definitely say my experience from having been in, in the shoes of having been an acting opera singer on stage that has allowed me to not only empathize, I guess, with the actors, but also to develop a language. And that's the thing with all these disciplines. And actually something that the, the Osco drama, something a bit different from about their design department is they care very much about all of us, regardless if you're a costume designer or a set designer or projection, they want all of the students in the design disciplines to build a core vocabulary of the other design disciplines' work. So, you know, me as a first year student, I had to take, I had to take lighting design, I had to take set, I had to take sound so that we can effectively become better, better collaborators and better communicators, especially because you learn it's really not about your element alone. And it, let's say you're a lighting designer and you really know how the kind of lights and colors you choose affect costumes and affect skin tone. and Or, you know, especially lighting and projection. Oh my gosh. It makes such a difference when you, you work with a lighting designer who knows how to be sensitive to projections. That builds such a, a more successful collaboration and production. But it is about building that vocabulary. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you is you have a lot of different influences and obviously you're singing and you're actively doing music. 
And at the same time, you're studying in school. And at the same time, I imagine you have some vision for what you'll be doing in the future. So what I wonder is, on a very practical level, how do you think about managing your time? And I'm honestly asking this for myself because I find that I have struggled with this a lot since I left school. This is the piece that I struggle with the most, which is I'm interested in so many different fields. And without being, I think, overly pompous or arrogant, I feel like if I wanted to, I could succeed at any one of them, perhaps, if I had you know, devoted my whole attention to that one thing that I would have found success at it. And I'm wondering, do you consider that on a psychological level, that you have to kind of split your interests here in order to maybe be a better, better production designer? But obviously, there are some people who have very specific interests in directing one particular kind of thing or producing one particular kind of thing. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's like extremely personal, and I believe that you know a lot of times I've I've actually really admired people that have had one you know one thing they're incredibly passionate about, and they dig into that and they can dive really deeply into it. I obviously know that, for example, some of my singing can't be at you know at a level that you know it would be if I was fully dedicating my time to just that. But at the same time, it took some looking at myself and realizing how do I function best? And I function honestly best as someone who can navigate different spaces. I don't know if that's, you know, potentially linked to the fact that, you know, I grew up in another continent and I've now lived in four different states and I've studied all sorts of things. But for me, vocationally in what I do, it's about how can I take all these experiences, these acknowledges of languages, of different audiovisual forms and whatnot, and be that bridge in the production of, you know, live performance. Once I've accepted that, it's, it's really been a joy and I think works really well with my mind to be working on different projects at the same time. And a, and a lot of the times, different projects can create links in your mind that you wouldn't have otherwise have come across or created if it weren't for the fact that you're working on very separate things. You know, yeah, I'm thinking, even in thinking about the future, I, I do feel strongly about, you know, potentially creating a space for production design within a music department or, you know, creating something that's right now not there as a structure. Right now, I'm also just embracing this, this work and where it's taking me. And I've loved freelancing and designing in all sorts of spaces, in, in all sorts of contexts. And it's also about keeping an open mind. And the the more open and the more flexible you are, the more you learn. And I think that's maybe the selfish part that's so satisfying. I've learned so much. Yeah, no doubt. So where can people find you online? The, the one place people can find me online is on my website, which is camillatassi.com, C-A-M-I-L-L-A-T-A-S-S-I. Camilla, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. This was a fantastic conversation. It was very, very nice to speak with you. Thank you. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Art in All Its Forms Pod. That's Art in All Its Forms Pod. 
Uh, if you want to send us an email with uh, comments, questions, concerns, musings, you can email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks.